Welcome to Gospel in Life. When it comes to marriage, we often use words like soulmate or the one. These words can reveal an underlying belief that to have a good marriage, you just have to find the perfect person. But the biblical vision for marriage is starkly different. It's a way for two imperfect people to help each other become who God intended them to be. Listen as Tim Keller explores the meaning of marriage. The title of the sermon tonight is Marriage 3. I figured this is the summertime. The end of the summer, you, go, you see a lot of sequels. There's Child's Play 3. There's Terminator 2. There's uh, Rocky 85. And, uh, and there's Marriage 3. I figured this is, I, just, I was just in the, I figured you'd be in the swing of it. Uh, please turn with me to uh, Ephesians 5. Those of you who, who've, who come to the evening service know that this is part of a series that we started 18 years ago or so on the book of Ephesians. And we're moving through the book of Ephesians uh, at the pace of a, uh, you know, a geriatric slug, pretty much. It's very, very, very slowly through the book of Ephesians. And we've come to the, the, maybe the classic text, the longest, the, the, the most famous text in the entire Bible on the subject of marriage. So let me read to you again from Ephesians 5, verses 21 to 32, and then we will take it from there. Submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. Wives, submit to your husbands as to the Lord, for the husband is the head of the wife, as Christ is the head of the church, his body, of which he is the Savior. Now as the church submits to Christ, so wives should submit to their husbands in all things. Husbands, love your wives, just as Christ loved the church, and gave himself up for her, to make her holy, cleansing her by the washing with water through the word, and to present her to himself, as a radiant church without stain or wrinkle or any other blemish, but holy and blameless. In this way, husbands ought to love their wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself. After all, no one ever hated his own body, but he feeds and cares for it just as Christ does the church. For we are members of his body, and for this reason, a man will leave his father and mother and be united to his wife, and the two will become one flesh. This is a profound mystery but I am talking about Christ and the church. However, each one of you must also love his wife as he loves himself, and the wife must respect her husband. This is God's word. There's a lot of stuff to say about this passage, but here's, what we, here's how we've been dividing it. Let me remind you uh, of where we've been. Let me give you a quick recap of the headings. We're looking at marriage in this passage under five headings. We're looking at the power of marriage, the definition of marriage. You know what? It's six, isn't it? <laughs> the power of marriage, the definition of marriage, the priority of marriage and the purpose of marriage, the structure of marriage, and the mystery of marriage. We mentioned that last week. I won't tell you what all of those are, but that's what we're doing. We're moving it through it. Uh, so far, we've only looked at the first two. And today, I want to get to, tonight, I want to get to the third. And the first two are the power of marriage and the definition of marriage. Quick recap, remember what the power of marriage was? The power of marriage is in verse 21. 21 is actually a bridge. For those of you who are here in May and June, when we were looking at the, uh, the verses of chapter 5, verses 18 and following, what it meant to be filled with the Spirit, verse 21 is a direct link into, uh, fr from the passage on being filled with the Spirit to the passage on, being, on what it means to be married, what is a good marriage. There is there's a link 
The one assumes the other. You know what the link is? The link is cause and effect. The cause of a good marriage is being spirit-filled. So verse 21, which is the end of the passage that we looked at, verse 21 is talking about the fact that when you're filled with the Spirit, there's a Spirit-created unselfishness, a willingness to submit to other people, a willingness to, be, to, to serve other people, not to be defensive, to, to have a servant heart. And that is the basis for any kind of healthy marriage. Now, we talked about that, but let, let me just... Uh, uh, let me make a couple observations to make sure those of you who weren't here know where we're going, where we've been, and those who were here have it clearly in mind. There is a spirit of servanthood. There's a servant heart, which is the, the foundation for any kind of decent marriage. That's why verse 21 comes before everything else. Well, some people have asked me, what do you mean? What is the servant heart? What, do you, what is that? It's kind of vague. All right, let me give you at least three critical aspects without which a marriage will not run. These three things, which are really just constituent parts of a servant heart, are like the oil in, an, in a car engine. Try to run an engine without oil. Just try it. Don't put any oil in there. No lubrication. What basically happens, of course, is that, that the friction, the tension, will destroy the engine so quickly. It'll get so hot, it'll overheat so quickly. There's got to be something in there that, that, in a sense, acts as a buffer. Because, obviously, friction is what an engine's all about. Motion and movement, something has got to absorb that. What, is, what, what absorbs it? What absorbs it is this servant heart. And let me give you three constituent parts to it. The ability to hear criticism without being crushed. That's a lack of self-defensiveness. Secondly, the ability to give criticism without, being, without, crushing, without crushing. Thirdly, the ability to forgive people without residual anger. In other words, to forgive people and really let it go. That's what I mean by a servant heart, the ability to take your mind off yourself when you're giving criticism, when you're receiving criticism, when you're forgiving. What does that come from? As we said last week, this, well, we can't go back into all the spirit-filledness, but what it means to be spirit-filled means that the Spirit of God is illuminating your heart and making very real to you the work of Jesus Christ. And if you remember that from June and May, when Jesus' work for you becomes very real, uh, the example I... Uh, Example that always comes to my mind is uh, is uh, when I talked to that 16-year-old girl years ago in my church, and she didn't have any dates. Nobody was asking her out, and uh, she says, "Yeah, I'm a Christian. I know I'm going to live forever in heaven. I know Jesus loves me and cares for me. I know He died for me. I know He gave Himself for me. I know He lives in me. I know that I'm His child. I know that that I have His ear. I know that that uh, He comforts me and will take care of me. But what good is all that if you don't have any dates?" Now, she wasn't quite that eloquent, but you see, at that moment, she was saying, intellectually, yeah, I know what Jesus has done for me, but right now, my heart is overwhelmed with the beauty of, uh, with the beauty of the prospect of being a desirable woman. That's what she was saying. Whereas, when I think about the fact that Jesus loves me, cares for me, that doesn't, that doesn't thrill me. This being spirit-filled means you're in touch with reality. Reality is, who cares what a drippy 16-year-old boy thinks about you when the king of the universe says, you are mine, and I will stand with you and for you for all eternity? What kind of, what kind of absolutely insane person could possibly put those two things up against one another and have the pimply-faced 16-year-old win? <laughs> and yet, I mean, there's nobody in this room that hasn't been through that. What does it mean to be spirit-filled? It means that your head is on straight, you're thinking... You're in touch with reality, and you realize what Jesus Christ has done for me is everything. 
The Bible says that there's actually two, that every human being is religious. It says this in Romans 1, that there's actually a system, there's a systemic structure, there's a, there's a, there's a systemic religious structure to everybody's life. Every one of us, down deep inside, has a way in which we think that if we behave, things that if we get to them, then we'll be fulfilled, then we'll have nirvana, then we'll be saved. Every one of us says, I will be able to accept myself if I get this. We've talked about this before. Every human being, Romans 1 says, has got something, some form of religion, something they worship, something they say, if I get that, then I'll be all right. The gospel says, not your performance, not success, not relationship, not love, none of those things will ever satisfy you. You can know who you are. You can be secure when you realize that Jesus Christ has died for you and you're, you're resting in what he's done for you. When that happens... And when you see the work of Jesus Christ for you, when you're spirit-filled, that gives you the ability to submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. You see, when it says in verse 21, out of reverence for Christ, literally out of the fear of Christ, you can submit, you get this unselfishness because Christ is so real to you, you're continually in awe before the reality of him. So how can you receive criticism without being crushed in your marriage or anywhere? The way is because in your heart you're thinking this. Well, Jesus is my priest. Jesus is my friend. Jesus is my king. Jesus is my brother. I can handle this. He loves me. He cares for me. He'll show me. And so you can take criticism without being destroyed. You've got a cradle of security for your moment of great vulnerability. Or how can you give criticism without crushing? Well, you think like this. You say... I was a sinner. I am a sinner. I should be cast off. So you're using the gospel on yourself. You say, I should be cast off. But Jesus, gentle, gentle Jesus, has put up with me for so long. And he continually shows me the truth, and I continually turn my back on it. But bit by bit, he's coaxed me, and he's been patient with me, and he's brought me along. How then could I be any harsher with this person than he has been with me? Now, somebody's out there saying, sure, sure. Your wife yells at you, and you're sitting there thinking about Jesus Christ as your brother and your friend, and your cradle of security is one of the greatest vulnerability. Well, look, in the beginning, when you're trying to reorient your life, when you're seeking to live your life and have your relationships, living it out of a matrix of servanthood, out of a matrix of the gospel, you do have to talk to yourself like that. But I want you to realize that this is not a mindset that you can turn on this week right away. You better get started now because it takes time. I tried to refer to this in, in, a, in the sermon earlier, this uh, one of the earlier services. Mo it goes like this. Most of you realize, I guess, that when I'm prepared, I quote from all sorts of people. When I'm not prepared for a sermon, I just, I just quote from C.S. Lewis. <laughs> Why? Because C.S. Lewis is somebody that I've read. I've read everything that he's ever written over and over and over and over again, ever since I became a Christian. Now, some of you are like that. There's a couple of books that you just, you, you master an author. You know what it's like to do that. Another guy is George Whitfield, that I've just, I've just read his sermons and read his sermons and read his sermons. Now, what happens after a period of time is that you not only get to master the person's works, but you actually begin to understand how that guy's mind works. You know what he thinks. Even though you've never read anything he said about the subject, you know what he would say. Right? I mean, you, you meet a character and you say, I know what he would say about that. I know what George Whitfield would say about that in a sermon. Why? Because I've read thousands of his sermons. Not, not thousands, but I've read his sermons thousands of times. What happens is you, get, you can get an author that really speaks to you, and you just read the stuff, and you read the stuff, and after a while you've gone beyond 
just the words of the book or the sermons, and you've come to penetrate to the way the guy's mind works. That's what happened in my case with a couple of these authors. And that's the reason why uh, when I'm just speaking extemporaneously, when I'm just speaking out of my heart, he comes out. Why? He's in there. Now, that's an image. You, you, most of you know how that works. A lot of you may have people like that in your life, authors, people that have just sunk down so deep that you know how they think, you know how to look at life through them, and their ideas and thoughts are in there so deep they just come out spontaneously. Do you realize what would happen to you and what would happen to me if we started to relate to Jesus like that? If we were so saturated in his promises to us and his summonses to us and his, and his encouragements to us and what he says about us in his word, if that had sunk down as deep as what I'm talking about to the place where not just the words but the very way his mind works and the very way he thinks about you becomes intrinsic, inherent, spontaneous, reflexive, instinctive to you. That's when you develop the servant heart. When somebody gives you criticism, of course you're not consciously thinking. Jesus is my brother. Jesus is my friend. He loves me. His opinion matters more than anything else. I don't have to be scared to receive this kind of criticism. This is not the end of my life. This isn't the end of the world. I know who I am in Christ. You don't think that consciously, and yet you're thinking that. Because what it's doing is it's giving its cast to everything you do. Everything. There's a stability I keep talking about. There's a poise there. A deep kind of cosmic spiritual poise. A sense like I don't have to be afraid of anything anymore emotionally. It's sunk down in there. It's part of you. You're thinking like he thinks. You look at yourself through his eyes. You look at the world through his eyes. It's only when you've taken the time through prayer, through Bible study, through coming to worship, through reflection, through meditation, through fellowship with other Christians and continually talking about these things together. As time goes on, it sinks and it sinks and it sinks until the, the gospel dwells in you richly. And eventually, eventually, that will become the power in all your relationships and the power for marriage. The ability to submit to one another, to really forgive, to give criticism without crushing, to take criticism without being crushed, only possible if you believe in Jesus. But I don't just mean believe in Jesus, but that he, you're thinking about him and you're thinking through him and you're thinking of him continually, almost unconsciously. Otherwise, 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 your heart, my heart is so hard and we are so prone to disbelieve anything Jesus says, in, even though intellectually you do, yet you, you reject it at a deeper level, that I'm afraid 16-year-old pimply-faced kids are continually beating Jesus out in our hearts. You understand what I mean. The power of marriage is an unselfishness which is created by the Spirit. Secondly, we talked about the definition of marriage. The definition of marriage, and you know, since I spoke on that last week, I can give you a little concise thing. The essence of marriage is a covenant, a legal, legal commitment. Somebody afterwards said to me, but that still doesn't tell me, what is a legal, what makes a marriage a marriage? Is it a minister? Now, there's a difference of opinion uh, on, between Catholics and Protestants on this, and I, I'm absolutely, absolutely believing, uh, believe that the Protestant approach is right. Catholic Church will say, only a priest can marry somebody. Isn't that right? Protestants will say, a priest can marry, a minister can marry, a justice of the peace, marriage is marriage. It doesn't matter whether it's a captain on a ship, it doesn't matter whether it's a justice of the peace, marriage is marriage. Why? Because look in the Bible where marriage comes up. Marriage pops up, originally it was given to Adam and Eve. It wasn't given to only Christians, it was given to human beings as human beings. 
And therefore, it's not a church ceremony that makes you married, though it can. It's not jumping over a broom that makes you married. It's not stamping on a glass that makes you married. It's not, a, it's not the rings that make you married. What is it that makes you married? What makes you married is this, a permanent and exclusive public legal commitment to share your lives together, all aspects of it. It's got to be permanent, it's got to be exclusive. Some people say it's time to have renewable contract marriages. You get married for three years and you have an option for three more. <laughs> You've heard that. Now that might be interesting, but that's not a marriage. By the Christian definition, even the prenuptial agreement, to be honest with you, uh, radically cuts at the root of the Christian definition of marriage. The Christian definition of marriage is a permanent an exclusive promise to share every part of your life with somebody else. It's got to be a public legal commitment, a permanent, exclusive, public legal commitment to share your life with, it, with somebody else, every part of your life. If you say, no, it's not permanent, it's every for three years, that's not marriage. If you say, it's not every part of your life, just here and here and here, because be a prenuptial agreement, you, you don't get this or that. All those things get at the root of marriage. The Christian definition of marriage is permanent, it's exclusive, it's a legal, public, binding, permanent, exclusive commitment to share every part of your life with somebody else. Now, how you do that, whether it's with a minister, whether it's with a captain, a justice of the peace, whether you jump over a broomstick, whether you exchange rings, it makes no difference. Therefore, even in this culture, which is deathly afraid of obligation and commitment and responsibility and discipline, it all likes to talk about self-realization and self-actualization and growth and potential, but it hates to talk about discipline and submission and obligation. Therefore, I, this is the place at which the Christian understanding of marriage has a head-on collision with the society. You should not give yourself to somebody unless you've got that kind of promise and unless you're willing to give them that kind of promise. See, if you're not willing to make a permanent and exclusive public legal commitment to share your entire life with somebody, then you don't really love them enough to really be married. And, you sh and the Bible says you should not give yourself to that person until that person is willing to make that promise to you and you are willing to make that promise to that person. That's the definition. We looked at it last week. It's kind of scary, but there it is. And uh, I, must, I must tell you that uh, a number of people questioned me about it because, you see, the implications of what we said last week the implications of this idea that marriage is a cleaving, that's in verse 32, it's that public commitment, and that essentially marriage, love is a commitment, therefore, somebody, well, somebody says, you've de-romanticized marriage in my eyes. So well, what does that mean? Well, what did I say last week? I said that, therefore, the essence of love is a commitment. Love is an action first. It's a commitment to invest yourself in another person and meet their needs. And it's a feeling second. One of the weird things about becoming a pastor is that when you become a pastor, for the first time in your life, you are bound and obligated to be friends with all sorts of people that you really wouldn't choose to be friends with. <laughs> I don't really know of anybody else who's obligated. You know, doctors, for example, have to treat people they wouldn't ordinarily like, but they don't have to like them. They don't have to be friends with them. I don't know of anybody else who basically suddenly gets a body of people and the job description is you have to be friends with a lot of people that you would not ordinarily choose to be friends with. It's, uh, therefore, in a sense, pastors have a kind of unique uh, experience to talk about. You would be surprised at how selective you are. People that you don't like that much, you just don't spend time with. You don't invest yourself in them. You don't give yourself to them. You don't listen to their problems. You don't go to see them at 3 a.m. in the morning. Now, one of the things that found, I found interesting in my earliest days 
You know, I, Kathy and I moved into a, a new situation. A jo- I got a job as a pastor. I had basically 100 to 150 people, and I started to pastor them. And there's a good number of them. There were people that if I was just living <clears throat> as a private individual in that town, I would have chosen as friends. And there were a lot of people that I would never have chosen as friends. Not so much I didn't like them, because you don't have that much in common. You're not quite the same. You don't have the same interests. You don't have, there's no spark, you know. It doesn't matter if there's no spark. This person is a member of your church. You're the pastor in a small town. This person's got a problem, you're there. This person's in the hospital, you're there. This person's got to talk to you at 2 a.m. in the morning, you're there. This person's uh, son runs away, you get in the car and go chase him. This man's, this man's wife has run out on him, you, you get in the car and go find her. And that's the way it is to be a pastor, especially in a small town, in a small church. You invest yourself, you give you do the actions of love for people that you really have no particular affinity with. And then after a couple of years, a big surprise comes to, to Kathy. You know, our day off, which I took every, every couple of months, I take a day off. And on the day off, she would say, what do you want to do? What do you just want to do uh, socially? What do you just want to do for fun? And I would say, well, let's have, let's have uh, John and Mary Doe over. And she would say, why? <laughs> Why in the world would you want to have John and Mary Doe? I mean, that's work, isn't it? The reason you see John and Mary Doe, I mean, everybody knows all the problems they have and how obnoxious they are and, and, and the, difficulties, the difficulties they have. And why, when you don't have to be with John and Mary Doe, why in the world would you choose to be with John and Mary Doe? And I, mean, I, re- I realized I'd come to like them. I was the only person in town that liked them. <laughs> but I really did like them. Why? Is it just because, oh, obviously, as a pastor, of course, you just have this natural ability to like people and love people because you're more holy, you're more godly. That's why you're a pastor. <laughs> it's, it's your job to be more spiritual. That's not true at all. It really happened. You know why? Because I'd been loving them, even when I didn't like them. And you see, you don't have to bother whether you like somebody, that's not what a Christian worries about. What a Christian does, if you love people, eventually you come to like them. It works reverse, too. Remember I told you the uh, one thing I once read where it said, at first, uh, the Nazis uh, killed the Jews because they hated them, but then after a while they hated the Jews because they'd killed them. It works the other way around, you see. What happens is, in the beginning, you love somebody just because you have to. The more you love them, the more you love them, the more you give yourself, the more you make a decision to invest in them, the more you find your heart tied up to them. You know why? Because the Bible says, where your treasure is, there will your heart be. Where your treasure is, there will your heart be. When you invest in somebody, that's you're putting your treasure, you're putting time, which is tremendously valuable. You're putting emotion, which is tremendously valuable. You invest and you invest in that person. And of course, you may still feel a hostility if that person absolutely tramples you and 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 is very cruel and harsh. That's not usually what happens. Usually you find that people that aren't terribly lovely, if you love them, you will come to love them. Now, I'm using the word love in an, in a, in an equivocal way. The way the modern society thinks of love, you're thinking of a feeling, but that's not the way the Bible ever uses the word love. You love them and you come to like them. You invest in them and you find that they get more and more lovely to you. I'm trying to tell you this. You don't go ahead... And, and get married to somebody who you don't like. But I can guarantee you this. Whoever you marry, you will fall out of like with. It is an absolute necessity. 
Not only that, you will start to fall out of like with that person in most cases before you marry them, in the, in the uh, courtship or in the engagement. And that's where most people say, I guess I shouldn't marry this person. I've fallen out of like with them. Well, friends, your emotions come and go. And if the essence of marriage is a covenant, a commitment, then you will find that in spite of the fact that you, you kind of love this person, you feel a lot for them, you might be attracted to them, you're great friends, the fact is your emotions will come and go. And at a certain point, a marriage will not work, or even a potential marriage will not work unless you make a decision to invest in that person. And when you find that your heart gets dry and you look at the person and you don't feel any particular like, you invest in them, you give to them, you love them, you are tender, you are cherishing, you listen, you, you serve. And what it does is it gets you through those dry times. Not only that, it begins over, over the years to eliminate the dry times. That's not the way most of us do it. When the dry times, when we fall out of like, when that happens, we start to say, I guess this isn't the one for me. Does that de-romanticize marriage? No. You want a marriage that sings? What you do is you decide to love. You decide to love. That's the way it's got to go. It starts with romance. It will end in despair unless at some point you make a decision to invest because where your treasure is, there will your heart be. The definition, the essence of marriage is a legal binding commitment, permanent and exclusive, to share your entire life with somebody. Marriage is one of the most significant human relationships there is, but is also one of the most difficult and misunderstood. In The Meaning of Marriage, Tim and Kathy Keller offer biblical wisdom and insight that will help you understand God's vision for marriage. Whether you're single, considering marriage, or someone who's been married a long time, The Meaning of Marriage will help you face the complexities of commitment with the wisdom of God. The Meaning of Marriage is our thank you for your gift to help Gospel and Life share the love of Christ with people all over the world. So request your copy today at gospelandlife.com give. That's gospelandlife.com give. Now, thirdly, the priority of marriage is actually the shortest of all of the, the topics, and that's the reason I felt I could get away with uh, the uh, longer recap. The priority of marriage which is the one thing I just want to say something about comes when it says, a man shall leave his father and mother and cleave to his wife. Now, this is what the Bible teaches about the priority of marriage. Very, very important. It goes like this. In our society, it's hard for us to understand the importance of the relationship between a, a child and a parent. If, you're, if you came here from another non-Western non society, if your parents came from an Asian or a Latin society, you, you can understand this better. There is no society like America and like Western society, that more uh, de-emphasizes the obligation of children to parents. Almost everywhere else in the world and almost everywhere else in history, your obligation to your parents is a tremendously strong one. And it makes sense. Just think of how foundational your relationship with your parents is. It shapes you so profoundly. You live with it forever. What could be a more profound and more primary and more foundational relationship than the relationship between a parent and a child? Hmm? God serves notice in Genesis 2, 20, and right here in chapter 5, verse 32, 31, where he says, a man shall leave his father and mother and cleave to his wife. He is serving notice. He's saying it in the strongest possible way. And Oriental and Asian uh, readers who originally read this was, were probably shocked by it. You're not shocked by it, but you should be. What it's saying is God did not put a parent and a child in the garden. He put a man and a woman in the garden, a husband and a wife. What that means is the primary relationship in your life once you get married has got to be your marriage. 
The primary person has got to be your spouse. No other person should you be investing more time and money and energy and creativity and emotion in than your spouse and in that relationship. It comes out a couple ways. Uh, it says, for example, in verse uh, 28, a husband ought to love his wife as they love their own bodies. You know your health is foundational to everything you do. If you decide to put your work ahead of your health, what happens? If you decide it's more important for me to get this job done and to make money and to do my career than it is to get enough, you know, just to, to eat properly and sleep well, eventually, if you put work first and health second, you'll eventually have neither work nor health. And so this is, this is God's way of saying, this is Paul's way of saying, that marriage has to have the first priority. I'll put it this way. Marriage is the vortex. It's the center of your life. If, when you're married, it has the power to set the course of your life as a whole. Some of you have heard me say this. If you ever come to a wedding, I try to say it constantly at weddings. It's the center of your life. If everything around you is weak but your marriage is strong, it doesn't matter about the rest of life. You move out into the world in strength. If everything around you is strong but your marriage is weak, it doesn't matter what's out there. You move out into the world in weakness. Did you follow that? Your marriage is the center of everything. It's the vortex of your life. If you neglect it, you'll lose everything. And therefore, when, when, when uh, Paul here says, a man must leave his father and mother, he is certainly saying, the reason I keep looking at my watch is there's no clock back there tonight, just for you to wonder why I'm doing that. Uh, when Paul and God says you have to leave your father and mother, what he's really simply saying is be very careful that nothing comes before your marriage and your life or it will introduce tremendous misery and pathology into your life. Now, what are the things that can come before your spouse? Well, one, of course, is mentioned right here, your father and mother. I'll talk to, talk to you about that in a minute. Your career. Put your career before your, your, uh, your spouse, and what happens? You lose both. Another one is your children. And this is a particularly bad one today. Because of the, the high incidence of divorce, we're almost getting back to the place where the parent-child relationship is becoming, because the marriages are so bad, more and more people are getting their main primary uh, emotional and personal nurture through the parent-child relationship instead of the husband-wife relationship. If your children come before your spouse, if you love your children more than your spouse, if you get more out of your children and their love than you get out of love for your spouse, that will, again, it breaks the biblical principle. And friends, the biblical, biblical principles bite back. You know, when you break them, they break you. Because this, it's not like this is busy work that God just lays down. This is, the, this is the way things are. You break them, things go wrong in your life. And an awful lot of research on child abuse has not come, a lot of the research on child abuse has, has revealed that so many of the people that beat their children and that are abusive to their children don't hate their children too much. They love their children too much. Their children, their child is the person from whom they get most of their love in the world. If their child does not love them, if their child does not behave properly, the child does not give them the things that they need because they're not getting it from anybody else, they go crazy. Well, children are children. Children are not going to be mature. They're not going to be able to give you the love that you need. And if your children become more important to you than your spouse, you're, you're in for tremendous pathologies and dysfunctions, as they say, and all those sorts of things in your life. If your career comes before your, your spouse, you're in trouble. If your children come before your spouse, you're in trouble. Friend, if your friends come before your spouse, you're in trouble. If you've got friends of either sex, of either gender, who you enjoy being more with more than your spouse, who you can share with, who you feel understands you more than your spouse does, 
you're already in a tremendous amount of trouble because we'll talk about this next week because the main purpose of marriage is friendship. And therefore, again, you again, you haven't left. Your spouse is not the number one and main thing in your life in that relationship. But maybe the most important thing, and this is what I want to, uh, to mention before the, the time is up, when the Bible says you have to leave your father and mother to cleave to your spouse, uh, it's a profound statement. There's many ways in which people's marriages have been absolutely destroyed because of leaving problems, because they haven't left. But there's many ways in which those problems can take shape. Now, some people think, well, I know somebody like that. I know somebody who is still, they're married, but they're still financially dependent on her father or his mother or something. And that's created all sorts of problems in the marriage. Or I know somebody who uh, is still emotionally dependent on his or her parents. And so they don't make a move without finding out what mommy or daddy think, and of course that creates problems. And that's right, those are obvious. When you have got a marriage and one spouse or both are still very concerned to find out what the parents want, more concerned to find out what the parents want than what the spouse wants, that creates all sorts of problems. You know, conflict management's hard enough with two. It's impossible with three, or with four, or with five. Not only that, intimacy is destroyed because when you feel that the person you're supposed to be opening up with completely really is probably going to tell the parent much or most of what you've just said. You can't do it anymore. Well, no, that's obvious, but let me it's a little bit more profound than that. Now, careful. You may have a problem leaving your parents psychologically. You've left them emotionally. Uh, you don't talk to them all the time. You're not financially dependent on them. But there's other sorts of ways. When the Bible says you must leave your father and mother and cleave to your wife, it is saying that you have got to leave behind old family patterns. And in a sense, it's saying a marriage is a fresh start. One of the great things about the, the biblical teaching on marriage is that it is a fresh start. It's new. You do not come into your marriage saying, this is the way it was done. This is the way I was raised. This is the way men operate, as far as I'm concerned, because that's the way we always did it in my family. This is the way women, this is women's work, because this is what it was in my family. This is the way people related. That's the way it was. If you come in like that, you haven't left, and you're going to have all kinds of problems. It's pretty subtle. I'll give you an example. In Kathy's family, the father helped, her father helped her mother constantly. Now, I know you start to, you know, you're getting tired and bored, but now you've pricked up. In Kathy's family, <laughs> her father, her father used to help her mother with the uh, chores that had to do with the children, like he would change diapers and he would sort of take care of, you know, clean up the mess and he would feed them and, and clean up and that sort of thing. So he helped her that way. And she heard her mother say, this is how your father loves me. He helps me with the children. In my family, my father never, ever, ever, ever was asked by my mother to do any of those kinds of chores. He never even saw the inside of a dirty diaper. He didn't even know what was in there. You know, <laughs> he had vague, he had vague, you know, <laughs> ideas. He had seen documentaries and things like that, but apart from that. So, and you know what, and I heard my mother say, now I, I'm not sure that either of us heard our, our mother say this out loud, but we heard our mother say, I heard my mother say, this is how I love your father, he works hard. He works long hours, he provides well for the family. My mother did not work outside the home. And so when my father comes home, when your father comes home, I don't ask him to do those things. I take care of these things. And I heard her say that. So now these two people, Kathy and Tim, get married. And everything's fine until the first child comes along. And then one day, 
I'm sitting there with a child and I notice a funny smell, you know, and, and I say, uh, Kathy, the kid needs to be changed, and, and Kathy uh, uses a, you know, says something that was pretty, uh, I've heard also uh, said around her family, whenever a child uh, is found to be, have a dirty diaper, she said, finders keepers. <laughs> and what that means around her family is, don't look at me, you've got the child. You're a parent, I'm a parent, come on. I'm, you know, I'm fixing, I'm fixing a meal here. What do you want me to do? You got it. What's the, what's the big deal? It was a big deal. <laughs> because you see, when I heard her demanding, now listen, when I heard her demanding, why don't you just help out with the child? I heard her saying, I don't love you. I don't really think that you work that hard. It's not that important to me to show you love in that way. You see, I was reading what she was asking through the filter of my family. I hadn't left. I hadn't left. Meanwhile, when I refused <laughs> to do it, and I said, come on, I don't like it. It's not my job. You can do that better. You know what you're doing. She didn't just hear me asking for help. Instead, she heard me saying, I don't love you. And it took time. And we had to begin to realize, we had to begin to realize eventually we had to leave. We had to start fresh. We had to say, what is right for you and me? How will you feel loved? You have to sit down and you, you have to say, I cannot react this way because I know that in a family, if a wife loves a husband, she does this. Come on. This is a new wife. This is a new husband. This is a new family. A man shall leave his father and mother and cleave to his wife. But it goes even further, and this is the last thing I'll say. You can fail to leave your father and mother if you hate them because you're still being controlled by them. Here's a man who says... I'll never take my kids to church because my father always insisted on taking me to church even though I hated it. And he forced me every year, week, until I, until I was 19 years old and I'm never going to take my children to church. Instead of him thinking, is this church true? Is it right? Is it good for my kids? Instead of thinking about this on its own merits, he's controlled by his father. He's not doing something because his father did it. Or a woman who says, I will not lay a hand on my children because my, my mother beat me unmercifully. She doesn't, instead of sitting down and saying, well... Would corporal punishment be a good idea or not? She can't do it because her mother did it. See, or somebody says, or somebody says, I'm never going to marry her because she reminds me of my mother. I'm never going to marry him because he reminds me of my father. So what? You're still being controlled by that? You leave your father and mother and you cleave to your wife. Marriage is a fresh start. Marriage is a vehicle of redemption. Marriage is so much like salvation that Paul starts eventually, and we, we can't look at it now, but later, Paul starts to say, the more I think about salvation, the more I think about marriage, and the more I think about the dynamics of marriage, the more I have to think about salvation and how we're redeemed. Redemption is a fresh start. Old things are passed away. Behold, the new has come. I know this sounds all very psychological and deep that you're supposed to think about uh, your parents' patterns and you shouldn't impose your parents. I mean, that's, that's real modern, isn't it? But no, it's not. It's ancient. The Bible's wisdom was here before psychotherapy. And it was saying long ago, a man shall leave his father and mother and cleave to his wife. Marriage has got the power to set the course of your life for your life as a whole. You cannot neglect it. It has the power to change you. It has the power to show you who you are. It has the power to, to tear you down and then eventually to build you up. Now, friends, last thing. This is it. If you are married and you are getting scared by the things I'm saying. He's saying, what have I gotten myself into? I want you to know that marriage is not a human invention to make you happy. That's what you're going to hear. 
Marriage is not a human invention to make you happy so that if it's not making you happy anymore, you, you just discard it. Marriage instead was invented by God to sanctify you. That's the purpose of it, as we'll see, to make you holy and, and without spot and blameless. I never, ever, 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 ever would have seen the depths of my sin that I have seen if I wasn't married. I never would have been in a position to see it. You know, it's ironic that, uh, that God actually takes your selfishness in marriage and uses it against you for your own good. The reason you have to finally, finally come to grips with your faults, with your selfishnesses, with your prejudices, with your biases, the reason you have to finally come to grips with them is because they're ruining your life in the marriage. And the trouble is you've got to do something about it. Why? Because it's just, it's simply the desire for emotional survival. Finally, for the first time in your life, you can't run. Finally, for the first time in your life, you can't run. God brings you into confrontation with yourself and then says, if you're willing to be filled with the Spirit, if you're willing to come to me, if you're willing to let me, my son, Jesus Christ, be your Savior, where do you see what will happen? Where do you see? Now, a lot of people who are not Christians and who don't understand all this dynamic have, have slipped through marriage and, and, and made a pretty good go of it simply by, when they get pretty, simply by just putting a kind of wall around their heart so that the things that they've seen that are really painful, they just, they just bargain with each other. They say, you stay away from that, I'll stay away from that. We, won't have to, we, we just won't ever bring that subject up. So there's tremendous potential for change in marriage, but really only people who understand the fullness of the Spirit will ever be able to capitalize on them. And those of you who are not married and you're saying, what does this mean to me? Come on, if you have a head on your shoulders, all these things we're talking about, all these things have to do with relationships in general. Marriage is the most intense one, but look at the relationships you're in right now. Apply these things now. Love is an action first, it's a feeling second. Hmm? Right? Love will always be something that only a spirit-created unselfishness can possibly maintain. You've got to practice in your relationships now. You've got to practice so you'll be ready uh, for the time at which you might have to, your life depends on it, which it does in marriage. What is Paul saying? A man shall leave his father and mother and cleave to his wife. This is a great mystery. The more we look into it, as we will continue to, the more we'll understand our salvation. And the more we understand our salvation, the more we'll understand marriage. Okay? We'll continue this next week. Let's bow in prayer. Our Father, we thank you that you have shown us tonight again more and more of the, uh, the mysteries of this great institution. All of us have been touched by it. Those of us who have not been married are surrounded by marriages. We're the product of marriages. We have all sorts of fears and hopes about marriage. We pray that you will take this, the scripture that we're studying now, these words that we're looking at right now, and that you will mold us with them so that the people who are considering marriage will, will walk into it wisely uh, without distorted understandings of it. So that the people who are now sitting in marriages can turn around and, and not be afraid of the, of the faults that are being revealed by it, not be afraid of the conflicts that are coming up, uh, can begin to reorder the relationship along the principles that you've laid down here. Father, transform us and change us and make us more like your son. Teach us more of your salvation as we continue to study uh, these words about this uh, greatest of all institutions, marriage. And we thank you most of all that through Jesus Christ, we've been married to you, that we are in your family. So now, Lord, make us more and more like your son, for we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. 
Thank you for joining us today. If you were encouraged by today's podcast, please rate and review it so more people can discover this resource. And thanks again for listening. This month's sermons were recorded in 1991. The sermons and talks you hear on the Gospel and Life podcast were preached from 1989 to 2017, while Dr. Keller was senior pastor at Redeemer Presbyterian Church.